I was recently reminded of a theory about the life cycle of nations. I want to share that with you. I have some new and unique thoughts about the war with Russia and Ukraine, but we will start with a national tyranny coming coming to an end on the Corey Truax Show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be When you think of important pieces of legislation that have passed in American history, you might think of things like the Civil Rights Act or the Voting Rights Act. Maybe it's a bad thing, but is this next one is a bad thing, but it's still significant because of what it's done to our national financial situation. But the Medicare and Medicaid Acts of 1966 or something, you might think of those or the Federal Highway Act. I think of the ERTA, the Economic Recovery Tax Act of 1981, that tax act from the Reagan administration that really jump-started American innovation, and I think in some ways indirectly led to the internet age. These are the bills that you think of when you think of major legislative action in American history. Well, I have come to report to you, faithful Corey Truax Show listener, the national tyranny of changing our clocks twice a year could be soon coming to an end. Yes, it's true. The United States Senate has passed a bill to end daylight saving times. Actually, it's to make daylight savings time permanent starting in 2023 so that when we spring forward next year, we'll keep the clocks there forever. And may the Lord bless this legislation. I'm so tired physically right now because it takes me weeks to recover from losing an hour of sleep, but so tired of doing this madness of changing the clocks. So it's possibly coming to an end and it will become Maybe the greatest legislative achievement of my lifetime. Actually, it is. You think about the Patriot Act, the Affordable Care Act were probably the two biggest, most significant pieces of legislation, as in the largest or most expensive. This is the most important, getting the clocks to stop changing. Welcome to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. I promise you the rest of the show will not be quite as frivolous, but... I was very excited about that point. Amongst many other things, I get to serve as the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. And Beachwood Church is just a ton of fun and my favorite place in the world to be. We meet on Sunday mornings at 1030 in Greenville. You can find more at beachwood.cc, and I would love to see you there. Here's my problem. I am usually, uh, let me say it this way, I communicate clearly enough that going into any given topic, I know exactly how and what I want to say to you. I know how to describe to you what I've noticed. That's maybe really what the show often is. I just noticed something, and I wondered if you've noticed it, and I want to talk to you about it. It's hard for me to articulate this one, but I will do my best. I've noticed something on the American political right, at least I think I think they're on the right, when it comes to this war with Ukraine and Russia. I would see comments on threads, lots of threads. So this is, I mean, I've probably seen a dozen people that I am friends with on social media. Not necessarily making comments that are pro-Russia, but are very, very much anti-Ukraine. Like, I, I see comments that it's very reasonable for Putin to do what he's done because, I mean, here's here's Ukraine trying to get aligned with Western countries, thinking they might join NATO, and 
Russia doesn't want NATO on their doorstep. That's an aggressive move by Ukraine. And can you believe they would do that? And not that's not a pro-Russia point, but it is an anti-Ukraine point. Like they did something wrong by pursuing alliance with the West. It seems I've learned that there's a there's a large group of people that they seem to be American right rightists. They're my fellow fellow conservatives in some ways say that Ukraine is very corrupt. It's a corrupt government. It's why the European Union wouldn't let them in. And I've done some individual work on that and found that's, that is largely true. It's, it seems that this president, they have now the Zelensky guy, in part ran against that corruption, but it is a deeply corrupt institution. Uh, it seems that there, which is, by the way, the case in most, most mid-level economies and down around the world, they're very corrupt countries. I was recently talking to someone who returned from, I think it was almost a decade in Honduras. It was Honduras or El Salvador. And he was just telling me how there's an entire section of the country. It's very large, like almost like one-fifth of the square mileage. They just know the drug cartels run there. The government knows. The police know. The, a lot of the police are, in, are involved. A lot of the military is involved. They know. It's a, and no one does anything. It's a corrupt government. This is the normal way governments run, unfortunately, especially with mid, mid-level economies and down. And so I, I see these comments from folks that just, again, it doesn't sound pro-Russia, but it's almost like, well, you, yeah, Ukraine's a, a bad place. Of course this is happening to them. But it goes a little deeper sometimes. It starts to feel quite conspiratorial, and you all know how much I love the conspiracy theory. I love to learn of them and to debunk them. And I'm picking up this sentiment that there's a group of Americans that see the world in this way. There are powerful forces unseen. Maybe one of them is George Soros. Like He's one of the names you might actually hear. Or Bill Gates might be a name you actually hear. But there are forces unseen that are actually running everything. And those forces that are unseen are the ones that run Western governments. Emmanuel Macron might be the president of France, but we know there's powers behind him really running it. Joe Biden might be the president of the United States, and Justin Trudeau might be the prime minister of Canada, but we really know behind all of them is some nefarious cabal of folks. And therefore, if Ukraine was trying to ally with the West, they must be part of it. And while Putin is terrible, this is their their narrative, while Putin is terrible and he's bad, he just knows the truth that there's a secret cabal of power running everything in the West. And it must be stopped from invading from from Ukraine as well. Maybe it's a little less than that. I, I think there's folks that go that far down the conspiracy wagon, or excuse me, the conspiracy hole, that they come to a spot of just saying, the West is corrupt, there's a secret powers, and Ukraine is aligned with it, and so whatever bad happens to them, good. There's also, I think, a step back from that, I've, that there's a, a set of Americans that are just dubious of narratives. There's an assumption given. If a powerful person is telling me something, I know it's false. Because powerful people lie. If CNN and ABC and CBS... And for that matter, even in this case, Fox News is largely 
like pro-Ukraine and calling Russia out, not all the voices, but most. But if there's powerful people saying something to me, I just know they're lying. If, even if I don't know that Russia is good, I know that the Ukrainians are not the good guys because the good guys, uh, no, nobody being adulated that, uh, let's go, that's a, what's a more, a less obscure word? No group being lauded by the, the media can be good. It's just, there's a lot of just weird anti-Ukraine sentiment on the right. And at some level, I, I can articulate it like I just did. I wonder if you have seen that articulated. Maybe you're one that actually has felt it, and I'd love to know about it. I want to hear what this is. What am I picking up that there's an anti-Ukrainian sentiment out there? Uh, if you, you can find me, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax, or CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. So that's one of the things I've noticed and I don't know how to define it yet. I also learned something from part, from going down a little bit of that conspiracy hole. I'll, just show, I'll tell you what I saw, and then we'll work backwards. I saw one argument being made that Putin is fighting for traditional religious values. He's aligned with the Russian Orthodox Church, the, the combining of church and state, and he's looking at a decadent West, a West that is materialistic, that is sexually deviant. And he sees Ukraine and their Ukrainian Orthodox Church trying to hold to traditional biblical sexual values, trying to hold to some kind of a financial sense that we don't just buy, buy, buy and get, get, get more stuff. And so... And the Western governments are trying to bring those bad ethics to the world by being imperialistic. That the West itself, because of its sexual liberation, let's, I mean, you call it liberation. Would you call us a liberated people sexually? I would not. It's a lot of bondage that came out of sexual liberation. People are just being held in a different way. In any event, I saw that argument that how could you argue against traditional values being imposed upon a group of people that are going to fall away from them. And so I started down that rabbit hole, and I did find this. It's an oddity. It does seem there's a portion of this war that is religious. Apparently, the, the Russian Orthodox Church and the Ukrainian Orthodox Church used to be really aligned, but the Ukrainian Orthodox Church is looking for independence and has claimed a lot of independence. And I was unaware that in these countries, there's a lot of alignment. Like This is the unhealthy alignment of church and state, where state speaks in to the church more than the church speaks into the state. And it's one of the reasons Kiev is so important, apparently. I found in a New York Times article that there are members of the Russian Orthodox Church saying, Kiev is the birthplace of the Russian people, and it was the birth of the, the Russian religion. An Orthodox Christianity, which, by the way, is not a real Christianity. Ortho, uh, got to be careful. I meant what I just said, but I want to give some nuance and clarity that any faith, including Orthodoxy, if it is not by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, if there's anything else you have to do for salvation, I am saying you are outside of actual true big O Orthodoxy. The excuse me, small O Orthodoxy, lowercase Orthodoxy. And so for. For this war, I'm seeing 
one of the worst parts of institutionalized religion, the desire for power to align itself with the state, and then the desire for power over other thinking on the state, on Christianity, using government military force, even backing government military force, to go force other people to adopt their governance of their religion. It's been some of the worst things I have seen. That's the worst, worst parts of religion in some ways. And then finally, just other thoughts of what's going on in the world. I've also seen the best. The best, the best thing the church, the church is, is good at. Send Relief is the organization the Southern Baptist Convention uses. Baptists are the second most common denomination of Christian, of Christian over there. And I have just seen what is now tens of millions of dollars pouring out of American churches to equip what's probably going to end up being not hundreds, not tens of thousands, but thousands of people actually on purpose going to Western Ukraine, going to Poland, and going to places where the refugees are going to serve them, to make sure they have food and clothes and have a place to stay. There were, I, th- I think it was 170, 170 churches, Baptist churches in Western Ukraine that have opened for people to live there as a shelter. I love stuff like that. So that's my latest thinking on what's happening in the world, and I kind of need your help. I'm noticing the anti-Ukrainian sentiment. I'd love to know where it's coming from, and if you have information, I want it. I also found out that this war is in some ways a religious war, illustrating the worst parts of institutionalized faith And on the other side of that, we are getting to see some of the best parts, where we love one another generously. All right, that's it. When we come back, I was reminded recently in a conversation with somebody about a book I read years ago. It's kind of a weird book, but it's about about the, the cycles of nations, and this guy thinks he's found a cycle in how nations rise and fall. I at least want to share it with you. I don't know if I believe it, but I want you to see the pattern. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. One of the things that comes along in the internet ecosystem when there's a war in the world is all of the prophecy guys come out of the woodwork because they know exactly what's happening and they can interpret all of the world's events right into Matthew 20. I think, of the Olivet Discourse and all the book of Revelation. And so you notice a lot of doomsday pronouncements. Now, we are in the final days. And that a conversation I had at work recently about that made me think of a book I read. I, I bet it was 10 years ago. It was, it was when I was most in my Glenn Beck phase. I haven't listened to Glenn Beck. Odd to say, because he was my... My go-to, my my go-to guy. I learned a lot from him. I haven't listened to Glenn Beck in probably five or six years. But a book he recommended back then, and, and if you know Glenn Beck, you know he's a bit of a doomsdayer. The world is often ending. I have been listening to him for, I guess that is, it was 10 years, and the world was ending the entire time but never actually ended. I should, That's a little overboard on him. Uh, I got I to gotta focus. All right, here we go. The book was called, I believe, The Fourth Turning. And it was going through the, the various empires of history and the, the nations that rise and fall, and he saw that there were cycles of 80 years. That's about the lifespan of a human. And so he, he was 
of a very healthy human, and he was trying to apply that the lifespan of a human is the lifespan of a nation. And then you say immediately, dude, most nations have been around for longer than 80 years. That guy was very wrong. But what he is saying is every 80 years, the nation becomes a new nation. They might not have changed their constitution. Maybe they didn't change their documents, but you've cycled through an entire set of people, and now the people that actually make up your nation, it's not the same country anymore. That's his argument. And so here's, like, I'll give you his, uh, I think his most compelling was in the United States when he talks about our, uh, first, our first generation. So the way, the way his theory works is this. There is the first generation that's largely brought up in hard-ish times, but relative peace, and they are the ones that meet a challenge. That, that first generation meets a massive challenge. That generation gives birth to the second generation, which he calls the awakening, the, the group that gets to live in the peace, in the prosperity and the security, won by the first generation. And they tend to use that piece of prosperity on self-indulgence, which leads to the third generation, which he calls the unraveling. So the, the, the first generation gave birth to the generation that squanders it. Then that second generation gives birth to the third generation that unravels the, 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 unravels the culture because they've, they've had no, no real challenges and they're, they're, they're lazy and they have no work ethic, which leads to the fourth generation having to face a crisis. That's the four. So first generation conquers something, and then there's the awakening people who do who squander their freedom and security. They give birth to the unravelers who break down the culture and deconstruct it, and that fourth generation has to face a crisis because of it. Here's in part how he uh, traced it in the United States. The first generation of the United States was the, what's that called? The American Revolution. For a minute, I couldn't get it in my head. And so if you take that to an 80-year cycle, and we could break this down more granularly, but I don't think it's worth it. So that happened in 1776. He says you get a whole new people 80 years later. So if you add 80 years to that, you get to 1856. What happened in the 18, early 1850s? The Civil War. So that, that next big crisis. And then if you add 80 years to, the, to that, you get to 1936. And what happened in the 1930s would have been the Great Depression and then World War... Oh, that goes right into World War II. Because World War I would have been through the 19-teens. 1912 to nineteen fourteen, I think it was. So that gets to World War II, the other big crisis... And then you take that for another 80 years, and that takes you to 2016. And so his theory would be, inside of those each 80 years, all that happened. The folks that won the American Revolution gave birth to a group of very, probably artsy people and uh, squanderers of the victory who gave birth to the, the lazy and the uh, unfocused who, the, who unraveled the culture and told that it was bad, and that led to the crisis of the Civil War even though the Civil War was over something else. Anyway, he traces that through lots and lots of cultures, and it it happens to have a lot of corollaries, which does mean, unfortunately, what I'm telling you is, we're due. We're due a crisis. You might say that we're in it. I don't know that we are yet. But I, oh, I'm not this guy, guys. I am not the doomsayer. I am golden retriever level energy. I'm sunshine and lollipops. 
I'm I'm balloons out my ears. I I just think everything is always going to get better all the time. Heck, even my eschatology, my my view of end times is a very hopeful one that things can always get better. That the church marches forth, that cultures don't have to collapse, but while the church is always going to prevail, we must recognize that the United States is a very unchristian culture and will be given to the natural consequences of its actions, its philosophies, and its beliefs. And we are due a crisis. I don't want you to be scared, especially as a believer. That's not us. We're, we're about power of love and a sound mind. We're not given a spirit of fear. If we have a crisis here in the United States, we'll be fine. Fine doesn't mean comfortable. Fine doesn't necessarily mean having all of your needs met all the time. It doesn't necessarily mean being warm in the winter and cool in the summer. It doesn't mean being able to take all the trips you want to take all the time. I'm not giving you doomsday scenarios. I'm not saying we're headed that way. I am saying we're due for a crisis. And it feels like one right now. I've talked about it for almost however long the show's been on the air. Seven years? It feels like we're in a civil war. Feels like we hate each other. We, on the world stage, we're a very weak nation com- compared to what we once were. And there's a lot of folks very comfortable with it, left and right. It made me think if, if we are due for a crisis, it was of our own making. We, we can't rail against reality forever. I think that's what's in large marked us as a people. We refuse to see reality and comport ourselves to it, to bend our behaviors, philosophies, and thoughts to whatever reality is. We refuse. Familially, we know what reality is. Marriage is a man and a woman. Everything else we've created We're just screaming at reality. We're angry at reality. We will rail against it. We will rail against the reality that children need moms and dads. Dads dads have been abandoning their families in large numbers for about 70 years now. We, we We rail against reality even so much that we celebrate single motherhood. And if you're a single mom out there, don't you hear me shaming you? You are doing a hard, hard thing. And if you are bringing up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, you got them in church, you're discipling them, you're doing a almost heroic thing, and I'm grateful. But we have entire pieces of our culture, social media pages, dedicated to just talking about how awesome single moms are. This is out of the design of the Lord. I'm not being mean. Listen to me. I love you. Listen to me. I'm trying to come to this balance to speak the reality. It is God's design that children have fathers and mothers. And then I live in a culture that seems to, that seems to argue dads are unnecessary and then looks at the institution of single motherhood as a good unto itself. Where what we actually should see it as is not ideal and hey, listen, we can overcome the not what's not ideal. We can do it. We, we, we love everyone involved in the situation. But I'm not going to pretend. I can't pretend. It's not compassionate. It's not, 
It's not loving or truthful to pretend it's good. And we look at single motherhood and say, it's good. We're railing against reality. We rail against the reality of men and women. If you have an XY chromosome, you're a guy. If you have XX chromosomes, you're a woman. And there is nothing you can do to your body to ever change it. However your emotions felt, whatever happened in your mind, whatever you did to your body, a hundred years from now, we could dig you up, put you into... Uh, put, put your bones into testing, and you will, to your bones, in your DNA itself, it will tell us that however you lived, you were wrong. It wasn't correct. Objective reality said that men are men and women are women. And familially, we have been a culture at large that has looked at family and sexuality and gender and looked reality in the face and said, no. I will not bend to reality. And we are feeling the wreckage of it. And you can only do it for so long before you have to pay the consequences. We've done it familially, but we've done it financially as well. You can only hide that you're bankrupt for so long. You can only transfer the credit card balances to another credit card so many times. Eventually, it all comes home to roost. And nationally, we have been borrowing from the future for a hundred years now. Eventually, you can't do it anymore. We have, for the sake of comfort in the moment, Instead of feeling pain right now, we're looking off into the future at our great-grandkids. This is what we do financially and say, you guys deal with it. You guys deal with the depression. You guys deal with the fact that the American dollar can't be the reserve currency of the world because we've so wrecked it. You guys deal with the consequences of that. You know what? You guys, children not yet born, you guys deal with a world where the financial system is dominated by China. You guys do it. You, you can't do it forever. I know this stuff gets kind of nerdy, but in 2008, during that crash, you might have heard the term quantitative easing, which in a really simplistic way just means this. A private institution called the Federal Reserve digitized money, money that is literally created out of nothing. They just said, all right, we're creating, let's just use round numbers, $500 billion dollars. Now, Chase Bank, uh, BB, I don't know if BB&T even exists anymore, uh, Capital One, all of you big banks, you come and borrow this money, please, and you can even borrow it at 0% interest or point, like 0.5% interest. You guys get it. Now, we need you guys, the big banks, you need to go to small businesses that need to pay their payroll, we need you to go to local governments, uh, home builders, whatever, and loan this money out. Get, get these loans out, and you can get them out at very attractive rates. Get them out at 1%. Get them out at 2% rates, because we eventually want you to pay us back, the Federal Reserve, for the money that we created out of whole cloth that isn't real. We want you to bring that money back eventually, but get the money out in the economy so that the economy can still operate. And after 2008, it's been trillions. I think it's been $4 trillion up until COVID. And then after that, when COVID hit, 
we sent something like six trillion dollars out of the out into the economy, not real dollars. We just Federal Reserve gave it to governments and banks, and governments and banks got it out into the economy to try to keep it afloat. And you can't do it forever without coming to a consequence. You're feeling the consequence now. When you put that much money into circulation without increasing the supply of goods, what you find is people are spend that money, it brings up the demand for products, but we have not spun up any more products. So you go spend what you're spending on gas. And you go spend what you're spending at the grocery store. There's inflation on everything because for a very long time, we've stared financial reality in the face and said, no, I refuse to bend to reality. We will make up money. We will send it out of the economy for artificially low, artificially low interest. And eventually the bill does come due. I'm not telling you that it's right now. I'm not telling you we're going into a depression, although I think we're probably going into a recession. I am saying we've looked reality in the face and told it no for so long that eventually you run out of excuses. And it comes home to get you. We have railed against reality in the family, in the financial world, but we've done it societally as well. I am less concerned with this one eternally because while I think this has been a decent culture, I know it will die eventually anyway. Like The American culture is not eternal, so I'm not as attached to this point. But as a social science method of holding people together to have a society, we have spent the last hundred years or so building siloed people groups so that we don't actually have any unifying principles. There was at least a time where generally you could get Americans to say, hey, why do you exist? Uh, for the growth of freedom in the world, I guess. We, we exist for, I don't know, capitalism, generally liber liberty. I don't, we exist for, that's, how, that's why we exist. But when you, you cordon off or you silo off parts of the culture that say, absolutely not. Freedom's the problem. We need more control. We, we need the experts to control things. When you, when you say your, your purpose is not for even human self-determination, or for that matter, uh, a central American value would have been s s hard work and making a life for yourself. And that would now be thought of as, by some, by some folks, as, I'll say it this way. I mean, I actually saw someone on the internet say, why does it seem like some of you think you have to, you have to work to, to be a person? Like, why don't you deserve just to be housed and fed just for being human? That's not how humanity has worked for millions of years. If you don't work to house and feed, you just die. That's how life works for billions of people around the planet right now. If they don't work and take care of themselves, they just die. That's the state of nature. But we look at our society, don't inculcate unifying values in our kids. We actually, in some ways, teach that the old values are wrong. Well, of course, you're going to have a cold civil war like we have people that just despise each other. But we are unwilling to see reality that you can't build a people that resent each other and distrust each other and think you're going to have a cohesive people group. But we'll look reality in the face, just like we did with the family, just like we did with the financial world. We'll look reality in the face and say, no, I refuse. I will not bend to you. I'll have what I want when I want.
And here we are, 80 years into what should be the maybe the next crisis. If that theory is right, and I tend not to think it is, but there's at least some pattern to that. I wish I could think of this verse right now. There's a verse coming coming to me. I'm just going to go Google it live on the air. It's Jude, uh, I would say chapter 1, verse 10, but I don't think there's chapters in Jude. It's just one chapter, one big chapter. Yeah, that's it. Okay, so this is actually talking about false teachers. Now, man, this is bad context. Whoopsie, but here's what it says. Um, These people, it's actually false teachers, blaspheme all the things they don't understand. We've become a people that doesn't understand how family and sexuality and gender and finance and societies work, and so we blaspheme them. We even make fun of them, make fun of those concepts. The verse continues, they are destroyed by all that they understand instinctively like unreasonable animals. Yeah, that's us. I think the King James called them brute beasts. And while they're talking about false teachers specifically there, we've come to a culture where as a brute beast, we will uh, we'll, we'll make this a little bit lighter to end the segment, but you've seen those adorable videos of a, of a dog who gets a very, very long branch. And the, he's running down the road, and he comes to like a gate, and of course the branch catches on both sides of the gate, and the dog gets stuck. But that dog doesn't, does not think creatively. He doesn't look reality in the face and go, I guess I'm going to have to turn this thing sideways because he's an unreasonable beast. He doesn't know better. And we as a people have become unreasonable beasts looking reality in the face and just saying, no, I'm going to get this stick through here. I'm going to push the stick through through reality. I don't say any of that to make you helpless, hopeless or helpless. I am just saying we are possibly at an inflection spot. It's good for you to know that. And then to buckle deep your own values, to take seriously what it is to prepare your family to know that not everything's going to be easy all the time, and to pray, to spread the gospel, to pray for mercy and for righteousness in high places. When we come back, I have a story from a sermon I heard recently I want to tell you. We'll do that and more on this week's Corey Truax Show when you return for the final segment. His Radio Talk, and wherever you find podcasts, this is the Corey Truax Show. Glad to have you with us. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax. You will find me there. And you can email the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. If you have thoughts or you just want to tell me I'm wrong about something you want to add to the show, it really is appreciated because I have to work less hard about getting content for the show. I recently heard a sermon that did... Something that did very well, something I was trying to do on a show in the past. On a show in the past, I was trying to come up with a crystallized, short-ish way to say the following. The world has for you various ways to come to a conclusion, to come to truth. But for the Christian, we only come to the Bible for truth. That's where we go It's not just the last word, it's the first word, the last word, and every word in between. That's where the truth comes from. Now, how we discuss that truth or how we disseminate or communicate it in the style thereof, that might be informed by other things, but the truth 
is the truth outside of all things. And at Beachwood Church, our lead pastor, Doug, did a really good job recently crystallizing three ways our culture comes to truth. And these are the three I was trying to get to in that segment, I remember, and I only got to the first one. So here we go. One, here's other ways, competing, competing ways to get truth, competing standards against the Bible. One is this, personal experience. That one, uh, someone might say, my feelings on a given topic, abortion, divorce, something like that. When, you, when it comes up in discussion, the first thing they say is, well, in my personal experience, I came from a, you know, I came from a broken home. I've been through a divorce. I have a, you know, I've had an abortion or something. While those are important facts in communicating and how we understand each other, none of those are determinative of the truth. It actually doesn't matter what you experienced. I know that sounds mean, but listen, we're not, we're not saying the experience doesn't matter. We're saying it has nothing to do with what's right and wrong and what is true. It's, it matters because you're a human and it's part of your story and I want to talk about it, but it, it definitely is no place to surmise what is true and what is false. It's just a personal experience. It does not compete with Scripture. So number one is personal experience. Number two, com- competing standard against the Bible for finding truth and morality and right and wrong is not personal experience. The second one is personal affection. I find this one often in the sexuality world. Well, you you change your mind about homosexuality if you just got to know some really good gay couples or lesbian couples. You change your mind about boys and girls, young people needing to have fathers and mothers that the, God's design is a necessity if you would just meet a, a gay couple that adopted a kid because your personal affection would change. You'd have a connection with somebody. That's very specifically not supposed to happen. Oh, it's oh oh! I like this. This occurred to me. Uh, excuse me. I saw this in the New York Times. There was a editorial that said, "Will the new Supreme Court Justice Katanji Brown? I think her name is. Is it might be Jones Brown? I think she has a hyphenated last name." Said something like, "Will her, will her background, will her middle middle class background influence and her educational story? Basically, will her life story influence the justices around her?" And I immediately saw that headline and thought, well, it shouldn't. You guys are there to read words and determine their meaning. None of your personal stories should change any of your rulings. I don't care if you guys are friends, if you know anything about each other at all. It should never change your ruling because the ruling is about what is true, what is false, what is right, what is wrong. And no one's personal story should ever change your perspective on right and wrong. Only getting to know Scripture can change and should change your perspective on right and wrong. So, there's competing standards for true and false. One of them is personal experience, and while that is an important part of your story and we want to hear it, it means nothing about what's true. Only the Bible does. Your personal affection is sometimes fine, and it's, again, part of part of who you are. Sometimes that, that even needs to be refined, your personal affection, but it must be bowed low compared to the Scripture where we get the truth. And the final one was pragmatism. So personal experience, personal affection, pragmatism. Where we ask the question, does does it work? What works for the most people, for the most good, for the most time? Instead of asking first, what's the Bible say? And I thought, 
That was a really good crystallization of something I've been trying to say in the past. I'm going to memorize that. I already have that the that when I hear in discussions people giving an opinion on right, wrong, true, false, almost always I'm going to be able to identify, ah, so you're using a personal experience. That actually doesn't matter. Only the truth matters that we get in the Bible. Oh, so here's how, here's how you got to that conclusion about true and false. You're using affection. Someone you love is affected by this conversation, and you've turned your back on the truth because you love the person more than you love the truth. You're, you're actually being quite pragmatic right now. You're not asking if it's right or wrong. You're just asking if it works. And I think it's going to come into use. So, heard that in a sermon recently. Wanted to share it with you. Thought it was a good crystallization of those other sources of truth. Now, I'll give you a fun one that I think we can, I think we can pull something out of. I, I am not a huge... <laughs> when I say the sentence, all of you are going to go, yeah, we know. You don't exude it any... I'm not a big Dolly Parton fan. My bride-to-be, huge Dolly Parton fan. My sister-in-law is a big Dolly Parton fan. She's one of the most popular people in America. I don't quite understand why. I, I mean, I kind of I get it. I get a story. I listened to a podcast a few years ago called Dolly Parton's America, and it told her story of living in this little cabin in East Tennessee. I think it was a two-room cabin with a bunch of siblings, she had a, some memories of sleeping outside a lot of her childhood overnight. Uh, she, she comes up through poverty, and she's quite generous. You know, she, she gives a lot away. I understand why some folks are a big fan. I don't get quite the affection level she receives, but whatever. Although she did endear herself a great deal to me here recently when she was nominated to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I don't know if you've heard a Dolly Parton song or not. It's not rock and roll. And Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has been doing that. They include just famous people, include famous musical artists when they're not rock and roll. There should be a hall of fame for rock and roll that is rock, and there should be a, an R&B hall of fame, and a country hall of, hall of fame, and a, I don't know, bluegrass or whatever? Maybe bluegrass is a subset of country. I don't know. And so she declined the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame nomination to be in, and it allowed other artists to be featured and a better chance of, of getting in. That's the story. But as we do here, sometimes we need to pause on those stories and ask what it might teach. That type of activity, not taking recognition, not receiving adulation and praise, this is not an American value now. But we, we are a Tinkerbell level need of applause. If you don't remember that from uh, Peter Pan, Tinkerbell needs applause to survive. And those are the people we're making. The people we're, we're making say, if I don't get enough likes, if I don't get enough clicks or views, then I might you know, implode on myself. And here is a highly regarded artist who could get a very cool recognition just saying, no, I don't think I'll take that. You know, recently she was brought up to have a statue included in Congress. If you don't know this, this is true, every state gets two statues they can, send, they can send to Congress, and they're in Statuary Hall. I've been there. It's super cool. And there was a talk about sending a, a statue of Dolly Parton to represent Tennessee. And she declined that as well. I'll tell you this. If North Greenville University said, hey, man, we want to make a statue of you, I'd be like, yes, you do. Where are we going to put, we're going to put that thing? Let's, uh, let's, let's name something after me while we're at it. 
that would be my natural inclination. Now, maybe I could pull my natural inclination back, but that's what I would do. So those are the stories. What can you learn? Well, in a, in a culture that is starved for attention, I mean, there's some real class and some high value for humility. To knowing where you, to knowing just who you are and appreciating what you've achieved and not needing more. Just knowing I'm an iconic country artist. I don't need to be recognized for something else. Now, take that to your own life. I'm a mom. I don't need a social media presence that says I'm the best mom in the world. I'm an employee. I, I work for my company. I want to work hard and do my best, but if I don't get the award or the recognition, that's okay. I don't need it. I know who I am. I know how I parent. I know how I work. To the pastor, I found out recently, I have way more pastors listening to me than I know, and that makes me terrified. You pastor your church. Some of you have a couple dozen, and some of you have many, many dozen. You don't need a book. You don't need a podcast. There's enough of them out there, believe me. You just, you're, you're the pastor of that church. You're the shepherd of that flock. Just do that. You don't need all the, you don't need all the, all the recognition. It doesn't make you much happier for long. Whatever it is that you look out at uh, when it comes to a, a recognition or an ad being recognized, I guess it's fun, but guys, it's, it's not long. The next person comes along and gets recognized. The next book sells more. The next podcast gets more listens. There's something in that Dolly, Part Dolly Parton story that calls to me and just says, just be happy where you are, man. Now, don't, don't be satisfied in a sinful way where you're not ambitious. You don't want to chase after being a better Jesus follower. And for, for other, the other illustrations I gave, a better mom and a better pastor and a, and a better employee. Don't, make it, don't, don't let it make you lazy, but let this reality set in. No matter how good of a fill-in-the-blank I am, I am what the Lord has made and what he's made me. I'm a, I'm a child of God. I'm in his image. And as long as you're trying your best, whatever recognition you get, who cares? There's a, there's a great proverb. That's it. Uh, fear of man is a snare. I think it's fear of man is a snare. There's lots of different connotations of what that means to fear man, but one of the ways you can read into that is needing the adulation of man. Not, not wanting humans' disapproval. The inverse of that is obviously wanting their approval, being desperate for the approval of others. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said, I have the smile of God. No other frowns mean anything. Some of you need to take that to heart. You're holding on to a frown that a parent has for you right now. And you're an adult. And the way parents disapprove of you, you've held on to it. If you're a believer, you have the smile of God. Who, who cares about their frown? I'm not saying that's easy. It takes a lot of work, sometimes even, even therapy. But I'm, I'm saying there is someone who has disapproved of you and you have held on to it tightly. It is in part your identity. Who needs them to smile at you? Why do you need them to smile at you? 
You got the smile of the only one that matters. It's I know it's one of those weird Corey things to get a deep life lesson out of Dolly Parton saying, I don't want a statue. And out of Dolly Parton saying, I don't need to be in the, the Hall of Fame for rock and roll. But there is, there is something there that I just feel like we, we need to take in. I, th- I think it's a, it's, like, it's like a quiet confidence. No, it doesn't matter what you people say. I know. I, I know where I stand. And at the same time, now I feel like I'm, I'm getting, I, I don't want to go overboard and say, you're just all wonderful the way, exactly the way you are. Don't let anyone tell you different. It's not true, right? So we're not all wonderful, and there's always room for improvement. It's just the improvement, the improvement can't become the goal into itself. As in, if I get to that job title, or that person starts approving of me, or my, my parent actually says I'm doing a good job at parenting my kid, when I get that, that's what I'll need, and that's what will make me happy. If that's the point of improvement, then we're chasing improvement for the wrong reason. I am, and, you're, and you'll ultimately, ultimately be miserable. And so I, I want the Dolly Parton story to sit with you and say, hey, I don't have to do all that. I'm secure in, where, secure in where I am. But then out of that security, knowing that you have your identity secure, go after it. Go after it. And by it, I mean your goals. Go after excellence. Now, we've not been called to laziness. You know, when you're, when you're at your job, you should have the reputation of being the hardest of workers. I think it's another proverb that says, uh, how's that go? It is the, a good name is, is better or is to be more highly valued than great wealth. Like we should have a good name at work. You should, yeah, want to be really good at the, at the roles God's placed you in, husband, wife, mother, pastor, employee, whatever it is. Uh, but the improvement itself is not the point. It's just all to the glory of God. I have run out of time on a Dolly Parton story. That should probably never happen again. I'll be back with another new edition of the Corey Truax Show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.